Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back, everybody. Tom Rose, Gary Bauer with you. The Bauer and Rose podcast, Bauer and Rose show. Take your pick on the title. We're here a couple of times a week and on Sundays on our favorite Sirius XM channel, 125 The Patriot. Justthenews.com helps post our podcast. You can check them out at justthenews.com. That's John Solomon's terrific site. You can get us wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure and hit the subscribe button and leave us a five-star rating. Gary, there's a lot to talk about um, since we last uh, convened over the weekend. My favorite story is actually not a favorite story at all, but I wanted to get your reaction to it. New York Times page A19. That's the second to last page of their A section. Former top FBI official in New York charged with aiding oligarch. Now, um, this, of course, is uh, Charles McConagall, a former senior FBI official who oversaw, this is the New York Times, some of the most secret and sensitive counterintelligence investigations, was accused Monday of taking money from a former Russian oligarch and Albanian national intelligence employee and from representatives of the Russian government. Um, So in other words, the man in charge of investigating both Russia collusion allegations was a Russian colluder. Yeah, you know, Tom, uh, I mean, one can make jokes about this kind of stuff. You can, I think some people just shake their heads and like, how in the world? Tom, we got a, we have a huge, huge problem and it's not just another issue. It is the central issue. We've talked about it a couple of times in the context of who watches the watchers, uh, i.e., how do you keep uh, the reins on people you've empowered to uh, protect us from America's enemies? But but I think it's it's even deeper than that. Uh, someone suggested, I don't know if it was Tucker Carlson uh, or somebody, I think a lot of people are suggesting it, uh, and this might ruffle some feathers. The, the Patriot Act, which was passed under a Republican president and was most vociferously and enthusiastically supported by Republican conservatives, among them myself, uh, in the aftermath of what happened on 9-11, uh, appears to have contributed to the creation of what is essentially a fourth branch of government. We have the executive branch, the judicial branch, and the legislative branch. This appears to be a fourth branch, and the original idea was the three branches were co-equal and would provide checks on each other, but it often looks like this fourth branch of the intelligence 
federal intelligence and law enforcement agencies is not only a fourth branch, it's not co-equal, it increasingly is able to act superior to the other branches. And irony of all ironies, the leftists that opposed the creation of the Patriot Act appear to have been able to essentially take over the federal law enforcement intelligence agency's operations and are employing the powers that were meant to stop our enemies to instead stop their enemies, which is the American people and conservatives. In an email to FBI employees, the Bureau's director, Christopher Wray, called the conduct sketched out in court papers entirely inconsistent with what I see from the men and women of the FBI who demonstrate every day through their actions that they're worthy of the public's trust and confidence. I used to believe that until quite recently I was of the opinion that this was simply a matter of the highest echelon at the, at the FBI, and that the men and women, the line employees, if you will, who work every day protecting our, us, uh, might not be as pure as the driven snow as I had thought. It's now becoming evident that this corruption from the top is seeping down, leaking through the, the, the crevices and the cracks of leadership to rank and file, and that is terribly disturbing. Yeah, it's uh, it's very disturbing, Tom. And look, you know, we we uh, we suffer, not suffer. We we are informed by a conservative prejudice, and that conservative prejudice is that any society, any free society, uh, has to have uh, law enforcement. The founders said that only a virtuous people could remain free. Uh, if you don't have virtuous people, you have more and more crime. And if you have more and more crime and more and more bad things happening and more and more bad people, you need more and more law enforcement and more and more big government to keep the crime under control. So we begin debates about law enforcement and defunding the police and whether or not we can trust the FBI with a prejudice, a legitimate president, a prejudice, a natural prejudice that says if somebody dons a uniform uh, and, and puts their life on the line to protect a free society, they deserve the benefit of the doubt, particularly in a constitutional republic where we have safeguards to make sure that they don't abuse their power. The same police and the same military and the same intelligence officials in a totalitarian society become instruments of oppression. That nobody in Poland, in the you know uh, when they were behind the law, the, the the Iron Curtain, said, "Man, I admire the Polish police, because it was the Polish police that knocked your door down in the middle of the night, accompanied by their Soviet watchers, in order to take you away if you said or did something that offended the communists." We are, in my view, Tom, in a nation that is in the process of losing its freedom. I just don't think there's any doubt about that. We are, I repeat, in the process of becoming less free. It's happening every day. I could tell you to go run errands, and I could take the rest of the show just going through all the things that we both know as the evidence of losing our freedom. As we lose our freedom, more and more 
institutions and people that were empowered to protect us from foreign enemies who are trying to take our freedom will in fact become instruments in the taking of our freedom. And I think we are in the middle of that now. And it, it, there's one big thing that has to happen here, Tom, and that is that the men and women that joined the FBI because they grew up wanting to be that crew cut guy that was a, a an actor for the good, the people that uh, are in the CIA, the people that are in unnamed intelligence agencies, all these people that many cases went into these services because they wanted to do the right thing have got to start doing the right thing at the place they work by calling out, identifying, and getting their colleagues who are currently becoming an aggressive threat to America's liberty. You know, the, the, during the 40-year period when we were engaged in this project called globalization, there was a bipartisan conceit that open trading rules would open up authoritarian societies like China, help them make help turn them into countries more like us, and in the process, pave the way for a peaceful, um, more prosperous and, and uh, secure world. Um, as we look at this, in, in light of your, your takedown of, of uh, what's happening to our own law enforcement agencies, I've got to ask the question whether our massive bipartisan attempt at globalization over the past four decades has, in fact not made China more like us, but made us more like China. China has state-controlled capitalism. We're lurching headlong into an era when, when we've got it as well. Insurance companies, healthcare companies, banks, mortgage companies, all operate today, communications companies, under strict top-down control of the federal government. And then you got the issue of, of, of state propaganda. It's always been there in China. They don't deny it. They don't claim otherwise. But it's becoming much, much more evident here. While the American media isn't owned by the federal government, it's very much like it is, right? In China, they own it. But here, our legacy media carries the government's water and, in fact, oftentimes drives the implementation of government policies. The American media works in coordination with the big state at direction of the deep state, in addition to, to being its, its handmaiden. Um, China's this dystopian state that's uh, controlled by state-owned big tech, while in America, big tech it's not state-owned, but it's implementing its own dystopian model by showing in so many instances even more powerfully than the state that it, it, it directs the prosecution of political dissent. We now have that here in America. Just yesterday, there were convictions of, of uh, uh, four people in a Proud Boy suit on January 6th, and the guy who dared put his feet up on one of the desks in Nancy Pelosi's office, the media always says it was Nancy Pelosi's desk. It actually wasn't. It was a desk in her office. The guy who walked into a Capitol with open doors, didn't break anything, walked in, walked around, put his feet on the desk of someone in Pelosi's office, is uh, convicted yesterday and faces up to 47 years in prison. His defense is, I don't think I should lose my life for putting my feet up on somebody's desk. I mean, we've got this vicious crackdown against dissent 
over the 2020 election and the use of events like January 6th is this pretext to impose a widespread regime of mass censorship, social ostracism. The, the one big difference, I think, between China and the United States today in Joe Biden's America is that the Chinese people are taught to love and revere their country, whereas here, uh, patriotic pride is gone and Americans are being taught the very opposite. So uh, ironically, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop this soliloquy here, the one area where the Chinese interests and the American interests of our elites absolutely converge is that both power centers share the same objective, and that is to take America down. Yeah, that's a that's a great summary, Tom. Um, you, you know, I know you'll remember. Uh, I I certainly remember it. I doubt if George W. Bush remembers it, but in one of the first presidential debates, in fact, in a lot of the uh, Republican presidential debates in 2000, um, I, I was uh, uh, honored to be in seven of them as a long shot candidate for president. And uh, George W. Bush and I. Uh, argued repeatedly about the same issues, the sanctity of life being one of them. But the other one we argued about repeatedly was whether it was a good idea or a bad idea to give communist China most favored nation trading status. Uh, George W. Bush thought it was a fantastic idea. I thought it was a horrible idea. And we went around about that quite heatedly a number of times when I'm feeling morose and wonder if I accomplished anything or really was in any way a significant player at any point in my life, I periodically bring up those debates and I feel very good about the fact that I was right and uh, George W. Bush was wrong because my main argument, Tom, was the argument that you just gave, that instead of trade with China changing us, trade with China would, instead of tra trade with China changing them, trade with China would change us. And one of the things it did was turn the American corporate community, the National Chamber of Commerce, uh, multinational companies that are uh, headquartered in the United States, uh, as well as powerful other institutions in the country. It has turned them into influencers on behalf of communist China. So the communist Chinese, as you well know, Tom, when they would fly into the United States, to negotiate with the Trump-Pence administration on trade issues would not fly directly into Washington, D.C. They would fly directly into New York City, where they would meet with corporate chieftains on Wall Street and tell those guys they better get on the phone and call the White House and tell the Trump administration to back off if they knew what was good for them and if they wanted to continue to be able to do business in communist China. Tom, you touched on something else, which I was going to start with until you stole it from me. Um, you were drawing this comparison between how, in fact, we are becoming more like communist China. The, the response in communist China and the response here uh, to the COVID outbreak was remarkably the same. I mean, they immediately closed down churches and so did every uh, tin pot governor wannabe tyrant and mayor in this country closed down churches and they did it with relish. It was, they saw it as an opportunity to close down churches in the name of slowing the spread. So, uh, but there is a big difference between what's going on in communist China and what is going on in this 
uh, alliance that has been made between government in the United States, big tech companies in the United States, universities in the United States, all on the same page, increasingly high schools, junior highs, and even elementary schools in the United States. That is, in communist China, they use their power to teach their citizens that communist China is, in fact, a great nation, that its future will bring even greater greatness, that they deserve to rule the world, that they have an honorable history, and that you, the Chinese people, have great glory ahead of you as the Chinese moment arrives and our alliance in this country between government, big tech, education, is in fact teaching American citizens that we are a terrible country, a country with unforgivable sins, and that we can only be saved by a complete transformation. Tom, almost, well, I, don't, I won't say almost, every nation in the history of the world has lied about its own history, lied to make its history better than it really was. We are one of the only nations that I'm aware of that is lying about its history in order to make its own children think that we are worse than our history was. We got to take a break. You're listening to the Bauer and Rose podcast at justthenews.com and Sirius XM, the Patriot Channel 125. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back, everybody. Tom Rose, Gary Bauer with you. The Bauer and Rose podcast from our friends at JustTheNews.com and Sirius XM, the Patriot Channel 125. I, um, I've got a confession to make, Bauer. I, I've started retaking uh, the New York Times, if only for um, satirical purposes. There's a front page piece. I'm sure you didn't see it because you've got better things to do than read the New York Times. A front page piece in today's edition, that's Tuesday. Um, more work and few hands at dispirited EPA. The nation's top environmental agency, the, the nation's top environmental agency, is still reeling from the exodus of more than one, more than twelve hundred scientists and policy experts chased out by the Trump administration. The chemicals chief said her staff cannot keep up with the mounting workload, and that the enforcement unit is prosecuting fewer polluters than at any time in the past two decades. Career employees are being, quote, worked to death, end quote, said Betsy Sutherland, former top EPA scientist. They're under the greatest pressure they've ever been under because if new rules are not adopted within the next 18 months, they could be overturned by a new Congress or a new administration. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so how did you guys chase them all out, Tom? Uh, well, obviously, we didn't chase enough of them out. 
that's for sure. We should have chased far more of them. You know, Bob Lighthizer, who was our trade negotiator, um, the, the president, President Trump's trade negotiator, there is an iconic photograph, which I'm sure you remember, which is, I think, one of the most important single pictures of the entire Trump administration. We were renegotiating the uh, NAFTA trade deal, as you remember, and um, our counterpart in Canada, Justin Trudeau, uh, dumber than a box of rocks, so he outsourced everything to Christia Freeland, Christia Freeland, who is the deputy prime minister, whatever. She was the lead negotiator, and Canada, just to give some perspective here, and since the start of the Cold War, Canada has been great on defense issues, national security stuff. Every time there's a problem, they always say, how can we help? We're here to help. And oh, by the way, uh, can we get a little carve out on dairy exports from Quebec and to ensure that you know there are no dairy imports? So by the time Donald Trump came along, there were, I don't remember exactly, but there were like... 67 or 70 or some number, very high, of these kind of carve-outs that had happened over the years. You know, you take a little ice cream scooper and a little dump here, soft soft wood timber, just all these kind of carve-outs that were baked into the NAFTA One deal. So Christia Freeland begins trying to negotiate with Trump and Bob Lighthizer on the basis of all these carve-outs. And we had no interest in protecting Quebec dairy farmers that imposed a 700% tariff on any U.S. dairy import. So um, they were going nowhere. And Lighthizer says to Trump, Lighthizer says, you know, this isn't going to work. We can cut a separate deal with Mexico and see if Canada wants in. And the photograph that just summarizes it all is a picture of Bob Lighthizer shaking the hand of the Mexican trade negotiator, whose name now unfortunately escapes me, with Christia Freeland in the middle with this shocked look on her face. That's the instant she finds out that Canada's cut out of the deal. And Bob says to her, well, you've got, you know, eight days to figure out whether you're in or out. And if you're not in, we'll just go with Mexico. So on day seven, of course, Canada totally capitulates. But that photograph is so emblematic of the way Donald Trump dealt with the world and the reaction of the world to Donald Trump. I mean, this picture is absolutely priceless of Christia Freeland. This just shocked look on her face. How dare the Americans, how dare they consider entering into a trade agreement with Mexico without us and all the carve-outs we had obtained over the past 70 years? Uh, Tom, I I think it's a great uh, point. Uh, And uh, I've got a little thing on my computer that measures our audience uh, we lost half our audience and the other half apparently is taking a nap. Uh, I mean, it was a lot. It was a lot of stuff there, Tom, just to say that, that Trump came in unlike any other president and he just refused to play by by the old rules. And you, when you began that uh, uh, those remarks, you, you I thought quote, it was doggone. I thought it was. Well, it was. I, I find it compelling, too. But then that's why it's the Bauer and Rose show. You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, you, you know, there, there's so much. There's so much bureaucracy here that needs to be uh, cut back and uh, and shut down. And unless we do it, it you know, it, all, it we're doomed. I mean, you, you the, the bureaucracy is so overwhelming. It is so large. One of the problems with all this classified document stuff is they classify everything. That's they true. classify things they don't want you to see. 
They classify things that they don't know what to do about. So, you know, that's why it's so voluminous. That's why it's it's hard to take some of this stuff seriously. You, you and I have talked a couple of times now, Tom, about how dubious we are that anything's going to be done about the runaway debt and the increase in the debt ceiling and all the rest of that. But I, I have to see, tell you, I saw a poll uh, this morning that um, it, it's got me rethinking it a little bit. It was done by the Daily Signal, which admittedly is a conservative entity, but they, they polled a thousand registered voters and they said, which of these things describes your view? And the first one was the debt ceiling should be raised along with corresponding spending cuts. 45% of the American people said they want that. The next one was the debt ceiling should be raised with no spending cuts. 24% of the public wanted that. The third one was don't raise the debt ceiling, period. 16% of the public said that. And the fourth one was, was what's a debt ceiling? 15% of the American people said they weren't sure about what to do. So, Tom, the public appears to be all in on this, and that might be an encouragement to weak-kneed Republicans who will run for the tall grass the first time, the first time that somebody puts a, you know, a rope around the uh, Farragut Square and says a tourist can't go in because it can't go in because it's been shut down because the government shut down. Right, as though people want to go into a. a- a once lovely Washington D.C. park that's now populated by homeless drug addicts. Yeah, which is huge over your, the Antifa that was in there right. before. Do you have? I'm going to stick with this since you mocked me. Do you have your phone? I just sent you a picture of the Christie. Do you have it? I mean, and tell the folks that isn't a priceless picture. I dare well, you. We're on. We're. I don't know how to break this to you, Tom. We're. We're on. We're on. <laughs> Radio. Live. I, I mean, I can't even show the photo to people. What, how am I supposed to let them know that this is unbelievable? Uh, yeah, it, uh, folks, this is, oh, my goodness. I I mean, it just. That's the very instant she I'm going to hold it up to the mic Canada. right now, Tom, and take a moment here. Don't say anything. Let people look through the mic. At <laughs> that's look, the instant she finds. That's just absolutely one of the iconic photos of, of our years in the White House. Uh, you know, the picture I love, here we are driving our show into, <laughs> into the depths of levels of listenership never before seen, a, a radio show dedicated to photos. I, I remember the one where Trump is sitting at a desk uh, in Europe during negotiations and the NATO meeting, and there's about eight heads of state around him, and they're all pointing and looking, and he's looking at him like, my point is, my point is simple. You people need to spend more money on your own defense. Right. And our own, our own media, Tom, and our own elements of our own government labeled us telling NATO members to spend more on NATO's defense as being anti-NATO. Right. <laughs> no, it pro, it's pro-Putin for NATO to be stronger, for NATO to be more united, for NATO to have greater interoperability to uh, defend itself against Russian aggression or whoever might. Uh, It's absolutely hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. I have a book recommendation. Can I hit you with it? Well, as long as you understand that when I talk about a book, knowing that you will send it to me, that if you talk (laughs) about a book, I am not going to do anything. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's called, and I just, our dear friend, our mutual friend, Roger Herzog, recommended this to me last week. It's called The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and the World on the Brink by, um, an historian I've not heard of, William Inboden. But can I read two paragraphs, one paragraph, actually, that, first of all, the reason I think this is such a fabulous book is because it focuses on Reagan and the world as opposed to Reagan's you know, domestic agenda, domestic achievements. Um, and he ties it all together in such a way that uh, – and you worked there for eight years, so none of this is new to you. But let me just – if you don't mind, and frankly, I don't really care whether you do mind because I'm going to read it anyway. One paragraph. <clears throat> He's unstoppable, my friends. I could have said anything. <laughs> it wouldn't have mattered. And, and you'll get a copy of the book, by the way. As a candidate – Reagan believed these trends could be reversed, namely the decline of the country. As president, he set out to do so and did. He led the American economic recovery. He helped spark a global boom that lasted three decades. He rebuilt the American military and used it to help repair America's alliances and bring down the Soviet Union. He revived his nation's belief in itself, its values, and its role in the world. He recaptured the strength, dynamism, and grandeur of the office of the president. And across the globe, Reagan recognized the emerging information age and democratic wave and positioned the country to help steer and shape both. In the Cold War, he perceived, unlike anyone else, the Soviet Union's frailty and illegitimacy and developed a strategy to exploit its weaknesses while also partnering with it to reduce the risk of nuclear war. That sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does, Tom. I mean, it was, uh, you, you know, he was asked uh, early on when he was complaining about American foreign policy and saying we had to do better. And reporters would go, oh, yeah, what's your plan? And he responded, uh, uh, we win, they lose, referring to the Soviet Union. Uh, th that, that answer was mocked, of course. But the answer, Tom, was actually revolutionary because what previous American presidents were doing, no American president was thinking of in terms of we winning the Cold War. All they thought of was in terms of avoiding a nuclear war that, you know, they thought this could go on, this stalemate forever. Reagan understood the world would not be half slave and half free. Either the Soviet Union would prevail or we would. And he was intent on on us uh, prevailing. Tom, since you brought Reagan up, um, and given what we talked about at the beginning of the show, people may not read the whole book, but I would urge them when they get a moment this week uh, to go back on, you can do it by you know, bringing it up on YouTube. Uh, you listen to Ronald Reagan's farewell address, his address to the, the people of the United States, because in that farewell address, he speaks to what you and I talk about constantly, and it was his fear that America's children were not being taught the greatness of America. And he pointed out that, you know, when he was growing up, um, you, all you had to do was breathe the air. You know, all you had to do was talk to the neighbor down the street that had fought uh, you know, in the South Pacific or in Europe, or maybe uh, talk to the guy that, that, that uh, 
sacrificed in Korea or, you know, you would you would get it naturally in the classroom where the, the teachers had grown up during those years when it was obvious America was the hope of the world. And they naturally excuted, exuded it in the in their in their speaking in the classroom. You could get it from the popular culture, in the movies, in the television programs. And then he pointed out that that those previous heroes were dying away. Uh, and uh, these things were not talked about so much at the dinner table. And he urged the American people to recommit themselves to raising another generation of patriots or run the risk of losing everything. And as we know, uh, he not only was a great man, he was a prophet because the polling evidence is overwhelming that we are we have raised now uh, the the least patriotic generation in American history. Wow. Uh, I was going to end it on that. But of course, um, I, how can we end it on such a note? Uh, I don't know. I mean, the, the, I, I guess the, the upbeat thing here is, OK, you've sent me to the brink of, uh, of suicide. Um, th- there are things here, Tom, that we can and must do on our own. It, it doesn't require the universities to get better right away. It doesn't require the social media giants to get it right away, etc. You own your kitchen table. You should insist that you and your family eat together. You should sit down with your children and teach them the greatness of America. The antidote to the poison that's being put in the minds of our children is alert American patriots, moms and dads and aunts and uncles and grandfathers and grandparents, uh, sitting down and making it a goal to save your child from the cynicism and actually the overt hatred of America that permeates too many parts of America's culture. Great nations don't die by war or conquest, typically. They die bit by bit until one day they wake up and don't need even to sign a formal instrument of surrender because it's been done piecemeal over decades. We've created a culture, or we're creating a culture where our enemy is able to hide in plain sight. They don't only have to hide, they are actually our betters. They're our superiors. They're the ones in charge. They're the ones that control the so-called cultural high ground or uh, high watermarks. They control our cultural institutions. Here, half of our, our political establishment the half that now has power, it's probably more than half, is actively working to upgrade our mortal enemies into uh, criminal defendants. Big media seeks to dignify our killers as militants, activists, insurgents. That was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Now they've morphed to the point where Donald Trump supporters are uh, criminal defendants. It's, It's remarkable. All, all the rhetoric, Tom, all the language that were, were employed, that was employed uh, against America's enemies, against the radical jihadists, um, all the ways, you know, as we approached uh, uh, American holidays, you know, there would be the inevitable warning from the Department of Homeland Security that uh, there was a higher threat level, et cetera. All of that rhetoric has been deployed against American 
patriots. And Tom, I think this is so telling and it's worth doing a show about in the future. It, that same language is being deployed against um, God-loving, freedom-loving patriots in every country in the world. They, they apply it to the Hungarian government. They, they're now doing it, uh, with the, in Brazil. Uh, I don't know if you saw it the other day, Tom, uh, uh, Elon Musk said that he has found evidence that Twitter was used to interfere in the Brazilian election and, and to the detriment of the forces of liberty. Uh, the Brazilian Supreme Court just ruled that if you question the validity of the election, if you suggest there might have been cheating and corruption, which there clearly was in Brazil, there's no doubt about it. You are a threat to Brazilian democracy and you and the Supreme Court issued a ban of leading conservative politicians in Brazil from social media. So this is a worldwide uh, battle, Tom, and I believe the ultimate goal is globalism, one world government, and uh, a loss of American freedom. As we have said repeatedly, uh, we're not a threat to democracy, we're a threat to Democrats. And that'll wrap it up today. Thanks for listening. We know you've got too many choices when it comes to podcasts. A Bauer and Rose uh, mark of distinction is we were one of the last people on the planet to get a podcast. So thank you for joining us, and we'll catch you later in the week. 